Amen. You can be seated. Let's get our Bibles out. Open to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. You can find that on page 1401 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Just grab that hardback Bible. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, just open to 1401. You'll find 1 John 5. So we're in this, um, you know, this, this unique little place that we uh, come to every year at this time where all of our children's programs have uh, ceased for the summer and we're, we've got this a few weeks in between uh, regular things and our summer connect. And so it gives us an opportunity to uh, have some Sunday night conversations uh, that are just not part of a book that I'm going through or something like that. And so I'm looking forward to tonight and the next couple of uh, Sunday nights that we have, I want to spend a little time talking about uh, knowing God. And I want us to really think about the, um, the effect that salvation has on the here and now, today, our daily lives, day in and day out, and some of the remarkable things that the Scripture says about uh, our life in Christ. For example, in Psalm 16, verse 11, one of the most fantastic verses in all of Scripture. This will come up on the screen. You'll see the uh, psalmist David. This is a mictum. In other words, it's a psalm that's, uh, uh, that word means it's a golden psalm. And David writes this psalm, and at the very end of the psalm, he says, You will show me the path of life, he says to the Lord. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And I think the danger is, is to look at a verse like that and to think that what the Lord is telling you and me is that that's what it's going to be like when we get to heaven. But that's not what David's talking about. That verse is talking about today. That verse is talking about our experience here and now as believers. And why is it so uncommon for uh, so many people who claim the name of Christ to really live in a, uh, a fullness of joy. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on uh, the study of His Word, and then we'll dive in. Father, we thank You tonight for Your Word, and we just want to pause and say, God, this Scripture that we hold in our hands is Your Word, and it's intended for us, and we, we want to receive that tonight. We know that it is inerrant and perfect in every way, and Father, that it is perfectly suited and applicable and relevant to who we are, where we are, and everything that we need tonight, right here and now. So Lord, we pray that you'll take your scripture and that you'll, through the power of your Holy Spirit, you'll breathe it into our hearts that we might be transformed by it as you intended. So give us ears to hear, we pray, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to talk a little bit about that. I want to talk a little bit about the struggle of knowing God. Some people uh, would say the phrase in various circumstances and situations. They would say, well, you know, what you don't know can't hurt you. You know, the idea being that if you don't know about something, you won't worry about something, you won't think about something. And so if you just don't know that there's somehow maybe ignorance is bliss. But I would subscribe to you that that's really a, a terrible uh, statement. It's completely untrue. Um, 
it may apply in certain situations, but for the most part, if you stop and think of all the things that not knowing about have horrible consequences. And the first thing I think about is, I think about, ask your doctor if what you don't know can hurt you. Ask a pathologist if what you don't know, it can kill you. I mean, you need to know, you want to know, it's important to know. What, and how does the Bible approach knowing? Is, isn't the Bible just right in our face about knowing the things the Bible wants us to, to, to know? That Scripture doesn't uh, mince words or beat around the bush or is it, not vague. And when you look at a passage like uh, 1 John, the whole book of 1 John uh, is, is a very in-your-face, very practical book that just spells it right out. I mean, you can open 1 John, you don't have to... You don't have to spend any amount of time thinking about, now what does John really mean here? He tells you what he means. I mean, he, he's just laying it right out. It's like studying the book of James. He just tells you what he wants you to know. But what about the rest of Scripture? Let me show you something, for example. This, this isn't unique. It's just a place where it happens to be very prevalent that I want to point you to, but I could point you to several other places where we'd find the same thing. These verses will come on the screen. What... Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Notice what he says. Verse 2. Do you not know, he says, that the saints will judge the world? Verse 3. Do you not know, the very next verse, that we will judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this light? Verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Verse 16. Or do you not know that you who are joined to a harlot in one body with her, for the two, he says, shall become one flesh? Then verse 19. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Now in one chapter, Paul repeats over and over and over this phrase. Do you not know? Now, that tells me that God wants us to know. That tells me that the Bible is trying to get our attention, that knowing is important, that there are things that we can know and those things we need to know, that ignorance can be not just detrimental, it can be catastrophic. And so wherever the Bible is sort of pushing forward information that clearly the, the hearers are to know, we ought to know those things. And so if you ask me, why do so few people experience Psalm 1611 in this life? Why do so many people tend to think about verses like that in, in a future tense and say, well, someday... But, you know, right now, uh, we just got to slug through this life until we, you know, finally get to heaven. Now, I don't think that's what the Bible teaches at all. I think it's a lack of knowledge about the things we ought to know. Or, maybe, things we forget to remember. That we maybe know they're there. That when, when someone says them to you, you sort of nod your head and think, well, yeah, that's true. I... I uh, 
I know that. I've heard that before. I believe that. But if you don't remind yourself of them over and over and over, the tendency is to drift off away from the reality of what that truth is. And that is going to have drastic implications, not on your eternity, because if you're saved, you're saved, but on your experience in this life. This is what I'm driving at, that knowing... See, knowing is, is critically important, obviously, in the process of salvation. Would you agree with that? Yes. But once you're saved, if you think knowing becomes less important at that point, that's where you have made a critical mistake. Because not knowing what the Bible says about the Christian and the Christian life, the today, the tomorrow, the Monday, the Wednesdays, the Thursdays, the Fridays, is going to drastically, drastically impact our experience. You see, if, if who we know determines our eternity, which it does, then what we know determines our experience until we get to eternity. Now, that's what I want you to see tonight in 1 John chapter 5. Now, sometimes, most of the time, usually, if we're teaching through a passage of Scripture, what we're going to do is we're going we're to deep-sea dive into this passage, and we're going to just, you know, go through the words, and we're going to dig it, everything out of it. That's not what we're going to do tonight in 1 John 5. We're just going to water ski across the top of it, and then I'm going to make application so that uh, hopefully when we get done tonight, you really uh, have something to sink your teeth into that can practically resonate in your heart. So in 1 John 5, interestingly enough, I've been tinkering with this passage for quite some time, and then uh, yesterday I get a text message asking me a question about 1 John 5. I thought, well, I happen to know exactly what you want to know about that passage. I've been working on it. Because so, it can be very challenging. But let's talk about some things we can know. Here's what we can know. Number one, that we're born again. Now, understand, when I say we can know that we're born again, the assumption is, okay, well, we're already born again. See, for a person to know that they're born again means they're already born again, right? Right. So we've already crossed that hurdle. We've already been born again to a living hope. We're already in Christ, our eternity secure. Look at what John says in verse 1 of 1 John 5. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves Him, who begot also, loves Him who is begotten of Him. And so what John says is that whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. So you can just sort of remember that, settle that in your heart so the next time somebody comes banging on your door unannounced in the, you know, the, the, the hottest part of the day and they've got a bunch of pamphlets that they want to bless you with about their false religion, you know, and uh, let me clue you in on one, the, the biggest thing you need to know is that they don't believe that Jesus is God. That's the most important thing you need to know about Anybody who's trying to handle, hand you a, a watchtower pamphlet. And so you just say, well, you know, uh, the last time they came to my house, 
Lisa had just fixed lunch, and so I tell you, they never come to my house. So, man, when they do, it's pretty exciting. So this just happened. Like, they haven't been to my house in years. So just a couple weeks ago, uh, it was on a Monday. It was my day off, and I'm sitting there on the couch. You know, when it's my day off, I mean, you know, Lisa acts like, you know, she, she gets a little overprotective. You know what I mean? She's like, it's my day off. She's like, give me your phone, and, you know, trying to make sure that I, she's like, making sure that, that I have a day off. So I'm sitting there. She fixed me some lunch. So she brings the lunch. I'm sitting there on the couch. She hands me lunch all of a sudden at the door. So, of course, you know, Oscar, the ferocious weenie dog, goes crazy like he's going to, you know, like Cujo. And uh, so I look out there, and I'm like, hey. And Lisa goes, sit there. I'll handle it. And so she goes to the door because she knew that was my whole afternoon. I was fixed to say, come on in. Let's sit down and chat. So anyway, she goes to the door. And so the door, so I can hear everything that's going on. I'm sitting there with my sandwich going, this is going to be good. So Lisa's at the door, and they're standing there, and Lisa's talking to them. And anyway, the conversation goes on. So she, you know, just keeps giving them rope, giving them rope, and they're just noosing themselves up, noosing themselves up. And then finally she says, but here's the problem. The problem is we're not the same. We don't believe the same because you don't believe that Jesus is God. And they kind of hem-hawed around a little bit, you know, they, their responses. But we believe in Jesus. And she's like, but... And then she, I can tell she's getting a little frustrated. And she says, here's the bottom line. You need to get saved. <laughs> now, now, that approach, I guess it could work, but it tends not to work so good. So that means, you know, I'm ready to end this conversation. So you need to get saved. And she said... She said, what breaks my heart is if you, don't, if you don't see the reality of who Jesus is, you're going to spend eternity in hell. And I'm sitting there with my sandwich going, get him. <laughs> so they said a couple other things, and she said, uh, well, I will pray that God will reveal to you the truth of who he is. But here's the thing. John just says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. It's just that simple. There's no, you don't need to dance around it. You don't need to. So why does John say that? Because the Bible wants you to know that you're born again. What God doesn't want, what God never intended, was for people to walk around in this fog of, un, of just not knowing where they are with him. If you're saved, God wants you to know you're saved more than you want to know you're saved. Trust me. And so he's going to do everything he can to help you know that. So the Bible says, you can know that you're born again. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. So that's the first thing you don't want to forget. You don't want to forget that on Monday or Tuesday or Thursday or Friday. You don't want to forget that when you're at work. You don't want to forget that when your taxes are due. You don't want to forget that when someone rear-ends you. You want to know that you're born again. I was having a conversation with somebody the other day, and I said, that no matter what happens to me, no matter where I am, no matter how difficult the situation, when I find myself in utter and complete just, just bewilderment at how to deal with a circumstance or a situation and I, I feel myself getting just discouraged and I feel myself you know I feel like my goodness what's going on I stop and I just say to myself I'm saved I'm saved 
No matter what's going on around me, no matter how bad it may seem, no matter what the situation is in the intensive care, I am saved. And sometimes that's all I got, but that's enough. I'm saved. So we don't want to forget to remember that we're saved. The second thing we can know is that we love each other. Or you could say that we're loved. And you'd say, well, okay. Well, listen, that's important. John says in the very next verse, in verse 2, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. Again, John is so matter-of-fact. So you need to know that as a born-again child of God, as somebody who is in the palm of God's hand and nothing, according to John chapter 10, can ever take you out of that place, that you are utterly secure in, as a child of God, that you are loved. And it's not just by God. You see, this is the thing. You're loved by God because you're born again. But sometimes we need to know. We need to wake up every day and realize that I'm loved and that I, I love the people around me and the people around me love me who are born again. I remember that uh, I was reading a book and the, the book quoted uh, a pastor named Homer Lindsay. He, he pastored First Baptist Jacksonville years ago, back before Jerry Vines. And he pastored that church uh, from, it, it was a big influential church. I mean, it was, I think, 2,500 members when he became the pastor, but it was like eight or 9,000 uh, a decade later when he retired. He was just an ex extraordinary man of God, had tremendous uh, impact and was really a, a spokesman for the Lord during that season of time. And, and here's the thing. Here he grew this church. You know, in, under his leadership, this church exploded to, uh, I think it was the third largest Southern Baptist church in the United States. And so during this time, of course, everybody's interested in what, what are you doing? I mean, what's your secret? That's the goofy thing about churches is that, I don't know why, but a lot of pastors think there's some secret to growing a church or something. I don't know. If there is a secret, I don't want to know the secret. I just want the gospel. But anyway, so there's always a church growth conference, and they would have, you know, Mr. Lindsay come, and, and uh, they'd want him to speak about, you know, how to grow a church and this and that and the other. Well, he rarely got in, ever invited back to go anywhere because every time he went to talk about church growth, he would just say the same thing. He would stand up, and, and he would say, well, uh, that's really an easy question. You just teach your people to love Jesus. And then he would just be quiet. And everybody would sit there and go, but, but, what, but what next? What else? I mean, there's got to be more than that. And he would go, no, there's not. That's it. Now, he got that from 1 John. Because that's exactly what John says in this chapter. So, basically what John says here is that if you, if you teach people to love Jesus, then they're going to obey Jesus. They're going to do the things that Jesus would desire for them to do. So if you teach people to love Jesus, then they're going to come to church. If you teach people to love Jesus, then they're going to read their Bible. If you teach people to love Jesus, they're going to pray. The more someone loves Jesus, the more they're going to share their faith. If you teach them to love Jesus, the more they're going to love each other. That loving Jesus is the catalyst for all of the things that everybody wants everybody to do, but they all come from just being in a love relationship 
with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so John just says, well, if you, we know that we love the children of God. We know that we love God's children. How? Because if we love, if, if we love God, we'll love his children. You can't love God and hate his children. It doesn't work like that. If you love God, you're going to love his children. And when we love God and we keep his commandments. And so John is saying, listen, it all starts with loving God first. The new birth, being born again, that first truth that we can know that we're born again, that precedes, but it, it bursts the doors open to all of the things that I'm going to say are true tonight. They all come out of that. They're all given to you the minute you are born again. It's not like a process. You don't receive them over time. They're all yours instantaneously at that moment. Everything that you need to live out, Psalm 1611, is right there the second that you're regenerate in the Lord. So when he says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, he then immediately transitions into, and if you are God's child, you're going to love his children. You're going to love God. You're going to keep his commandments. John says that we can know that we're born again because we're going to love God. We're going to obey his commandments. And that's going to result in we're going to have love for his children. You notice that the next verse, verse 3, says that our obedience is not burdensome. Now, that's kind of a, a revolutionary statement, wouldn't you think? In other words... The whole point I'm trying to make is that the Bible is saying, here's all these things you can know, that as a believer, your daily life should be filled with joy and peace, and all of the amazing fruit of the Spirit of God should be prevalent in your life, and yet so many people are missing that, and, and so many people approach being obedient to God as if it's this drudgery, as if it's like chores, what is going to greatly impact your life is as you, if you woke up every day and reminded yourself that you know that you're born again. And because you know that you're born again, you also know that you are loved. And if you know you're born again, so you know you're okay, you know you're loved, and you walk in obedience to God knowing that it's not burdensome. That in response to being loved by God and loved, and, and loved by God's people, that all of these things make serving God and obeying God, well, who else would you obey? I mean, why would you celebrate being born again and then on the other hand be resistant or hesitant to following the one who gave you the greatest gift you could ever have? It wouldn't make any sense, would it? It doesn't to the Scripture. So we can know that we're born again. We can know that we love each other. Thirdly, we can know that we're overcomers. Now look at verse 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. What is that? Our faith. Who is he, he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, if you knew that you were born again. I mean, if you knew just the tip of the iceberg of all of the ramifications of knowing that to be true, but, but if you just knew that you were born again, and you knew 
that you were loved. You knew that you loved the people of God and that the people of God loved you because that's the community of God for those who are His. So the first thing makes the second thing true. So if you know the first thing, you know the second thing. And now the third part of this is that in this process, if the first one's true, the second one is true, and the third one is that you're an overcomer. That your faith overcomes the world. Now, if you say to yourself, now what exactly does that mean? Here's what that means. That means that the world is not going to overcome you. There's a lot of times where the world tries to make it seem like it's going to overwhelm us or overcome us. There's a lot of times where the, the, the waters of trouble want to come up around the edge of the boat and make us feel like we're about to sink. But the Bible says, no, that's just a, a, a disguise. That's just a lie. That's not the case. The reality is, is that you are born of God, which means you overcome the world through your faith. That this is the victory. This is the victory. That today, tomorrow, and every single day for the rest of your life, until you take your last breath on this earth and are face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ in perfection, every single day, this is the victory, your faith. The world will not, cannot win. Now, what if we, this is the thing, you can't just give lip service to that. Because what happens is, then you say, well, you know, I believe that, but you don't live as if you believe that. You don't, when, when trouble comes, what happens? You're smashing the panic button as if it's going to overwhelm you, as if it's going to overcome you. Hold on a second. The Bible says that you have victory over the world. That you should know that. That you shouldn't forget the reality that you have victory over the world through your faith. So here's what I used to do. I used to go through this time after time after time with young people. I mean, young people would just get overwhelmed by what is going on around them. And the pressure of all of these things that build up in their mind that they can't see any way around. I mean, it, it could be the, the young lady who all of her friends are getting married, and there she is all alone. And so, you know, suddenly she uh, gets herself in a relationship with somebody she shouldn't be uh, dating and I end up sitting down having a conversation saying, listen, I'm a little concerned about this. And, you know, we talk. And at first they're like, oh, no, you know, he's a Christian. Well, how do you know he's a Christian? Well, I think he's a Christian. Well, after five minutes in a conversation, we don't even know. You know, all we know is that he's human. That's all we know at this point. <laughs> but here's the, the thing is, is that she's panicking. She's like, I just don't want to be alone. Everyone else is getting married, and I'm, I'm afraid there's not going to be anybody left. And, you know, what if, what if, what if I lose him? Or you, know, you see what I mean? Or the young man who, who feels the, the world closing in around him, and he's got to make some decisions. And so he just makes this decision that's probably not the best one, where all the wisdom that he's getting is saying, you might want to be patient here. You might want to wait on this. But he, he's too afraid that if he waits, he's going to miss out. And so this is what I would say. I, I, I reel him in, and I go, now, okay, hold on a second. Let's just imagine for a second. Let's just imagine, teenagers, for just a second, that 
that I had this crystal ball. See, your pastor usually doesn't tell you that. You know, usually your pastor's not going to say, let's imagine I have a crystal ball here. But let's imagine I have a crystal ball. And this crystal ball has the ability to tell the future, which is what a crystal ball is supposed to be able to do. And so I get this crystal ball out, and I show you your life 10 years from now. And I show you that 10 years from now, everything's okay. That all of your fears are, uh, are not going to come true. What if I could show this young, I'd tell this young lady, what if I could show you that 10 years from now, you, there you are and look at you. You look at that smile on your face. And you know what? You're serving God. You're walking with God. God. I mean, maybe you have this amazing godly husband. Maybe you have these wonderful children. Maybe you don't. I don't know. But here's what I know. That you're, you're completely fulfilled. And you're completely uh, uh, just in love with Jesus. And everything's okay. And all the things you're worried about aren't going to happen. What if I could show you that you're going to be okay? Would you not change the things you're doing today? And every time they would say, well, yeah. You know what that is? That is a failure to know what the Bible has plainly said is true. Don't you see that? That the Bible says you and me are overcomers. That he who overcomes the world is he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That our faith will not be overwhelmed or overcome by the world. Now, that's not just at the end of this life. That's every single day of your life. So if you woke up every day and you reminded yourself that I'm born again, nothing can ever change that. I am loved, not just by God, but by the people of God around me. So when I feel alone, forsaken, forgotten, that's a lie. That is a lie. And thirdly, that the world will not overcome me. No matter how much it seems, no matter how dark it seems, no matter how hopeless it seems, the world will not overcome me. And that in the midst of this, John says, my life will begin to resemble the life of someone who's walking with God just out of the knowledge of these simple, three simple realities. Now, I mean, we could keep going. We're not, but we could keep going. The next section in 1 John would tell us we could know that Jesus is God so we wouldn't have to get worried when somebody knocks on our door and tries to tell us he's not. Then we could go to the very next section from 11 to 13, and we could know that we've received this gift of eternal life, so we wouldn't have to, so we would be utterly certain and secure of what we gain when we're born again, so we could see that. We go to the next section, and John's gonna say, Here's what you need to know. When you pray, God hears you, and He answers your prayers, that He knows what you need, that He cares for you, that He's with you. This over and over and over, this whole chapter is about John saying, You can know this, you can know this, you can know this, you can know this. He wants you to know. God wants you to know. So what is the problem? Why? Some of you are sitting here tonight and you're thinking, I wish it was that easy. I wish that, that I didn't panic. I wish that I didn't, in my mind, just mull over these tragic situations that haven't even happened, but in my mind, it's just like it's going to be there. 
I wish I could, I could, I could see the, the, the glass half full, but it's always half empty for me. What can I say to you tonight to try to help you? Well, I would say this. The first thing I would say to you is that God put in you a desire for joy and a desire for pleasure because we all have it. So that doesn't change. That's universal to all humanity. So the difference maker... In other words, if in God's presence is the fullness of joy, if I am God's child and I don't find myself walking in the the fullness of His presence, experiencing the joy that comes with that, then there can only be one thing that must be true. That I am finding joy in a lesser thing. That somehow I have... I have turned my joy scale down. I have lowered my expectation of joy. In other words, sometimes I talk to people and I realize in the course of conversation that their idea of joy is so vastly different from my idea. That their idea of joy is literally just surviving. And I'm thinking, I'm not even interested in that. Man, I want to walk in the fullness of the presence of God. That's what I want. And so when I'm not there, I want that. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out what's my problem. And it's always the same thing. I have found, I've settled for lesser joy. You see, I've accepted some other joy option that I have. I did the same thing that young people do. I panic because I go, well, if I don't don't find joy in this, then I might not have any joy at all. So some joy is better than no joy. To, To which I say, forget it, reject it, not interested. So I know this is a little hard to get your head around, so I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you a story that that has always explained this to me in a way that just sets it in my heart, that I've never been able to forget it, that I always know, uh, I always know where I am and where I need to be and how to get there. Because the, the myth is, Christian, you just need to try harder. No, that's not what I'm telling you to do. I'm not telling you to try harder. Or... The result could be that you just stop trying altogether. No, that would be horrible too. Those two things are not at all what I'm saying. So let me, let me tell you a story from Greek mythology. Anybody in here study Greek mythology? Any? You know, it, it's, it's mythology, right? So it's basically like studying Scooby-Doo, really, but it's just a little... Uh, higher grade of Scooby-Doo. You taking Greek mythology in school over there? Anybody? They still teach that in school? No. We're on Common Core. We don't even know what, what Greek mythology is. Do you know what Greece is? Have you ever heard of that? Okay, anyway. So, uh, Greek mythology tells us... Now, you'll know this story because it's always in the movies. About every five years, some big movie comes out with some big movie star telling the story. So, the, the story is how the Greeks are trying to overthrow, how to invade and take over the city of Troy. Okay, now you're tracking with me. And so they're led by their leader, Ulysses. 
And Ulysses has to figure out how many. So he takes his army and they start barraging the, the city of Troy. And it's impenetrable. I mean, it's, it's just, it ain't falling. See, that's the difference between Greek mythology. See, in the Bible, they just blow a trumpet and march around seven times and the whole thing collapses. <laughs> so every time I watch a movie, I go, dummy, dummy. But anyway, but that, that's Greek mythology. So they can't, they're just, there's no hope. They can't get in. So... Ulysses says, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pretend to sail away, but we're going to leave them this gift. And it's really going to be this big horse, but we're going to put 30 men inside the horse. And then they're going to take the gift and bring it in, and we're going to take over the city. Great idea. And then I always think, good thing they didn't burn the horse. But anyway, that's what I think. Okay, so they... You know the story. So the, they pretend to leave. They bring the horse in. The guys jump out. They take the city of Troy, and Ulysses is victorious. Well, it's been a long campaign. It's been a big, long, hard-fought battle. Now he's a hero. He's ready to go home. And so Brad Pitt, I mean Ulysses, decides he's, gonna, uh, he's got to get home to his beautiful wife Penelope. And uh, not Cruz, Penelope. And so he's got to get home to Penelope. And he, and, but it's a long and dangerous journey home. And so he's got to sail through all these treacherous areas. Well, many people have died trying to get back. And most of those people died because they have to pass through this narrow inlet where the sirens are. You ever heard of the sirens? The sirens are this group of sort of, uh, sort of demonic, flesh-eating creatures that what happens is whenever a ship passes by uh, their island, they sort of morph themselves into these irresistibly gorgeous, sensuous females. And they sing this beautiful music. And the sailors are so captivated by their beauty, and they're so drawn in by, by what the sirens are doing that the sailors start casting themselves off of the ship, even trying to swim to shore. And what they don't know is that around the island of the sirens are these jagged rocks just under the water, just under the surface of the water. So whenever the ship turns to go, they're like, you know, because they're a bunch of sailors. They're like, dude, we're docking there. So then they turn, they hit the rocks, and they all start drowning, and then these beautiful uh, sirens then eat their flesh. Isn't that wonderful? So they basically have them for dinner. And so Ulysses has got to sail past the sirens and get home to Penelope. And so he knows the danger, the wreckage of all the ships that have sunk there, and the stories of all the people that have died there. And so he comes up with a plan. Now, this is a pretty smart cat because he's the one that thought of, let's make a giant horse and roll it in there, and then we'll take over Troy. So he thinks, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I am going to take all my men, and I'm going to plug their ears with wax. And then I'm going to plug my ears with wax. And then I'm going to instruct my men that they are not to change course no matter what I say. Then he had his men tie him to the mast of the ship. 
So everyone's ears are plugged with wax. He is bound by this rope tied to the mast of the ship. And so they're sailing along. Everyone's gotten their instructions. And as soon as they get by the sirens, guess what happens? The sirens start, you know, doing their little thing that they do. I'll just leave it at that. And Ulysses starts going crazy. And he starts telling them, turn the ship. Turn the ship. Go in. Untie me. Untie me. And they just keep rowing and rowing and rowing. They put their heads down. They got wax in their ears. They're not looking. They just row and row and they make it through. They survive. And they get home. Safely. Now, why did I just tell you that story? Because that is the way I see a lot of people living their Christian life. They get saved, and they're just trying to fill their ears with wax, close their eyes, and just row till they get to heaven. They're like, I don't want to know, don't want to know, don't want to hear, don't want to see, can't, you know, and they're just trying to get there. And so they're just trying to, and temptation is all around us, and opportunity to fall is all, and they're just rowing along. And here's the thing, a lot of people, a lot of people look at them and say, they are amazing Christians. I think they're horrible Christians. I don't think that's what the Bible intended at all. I don't think you can back that up biblically on one page of the entire scripture that's not at all what God intended for you and me you think that that what he did was send his son to die so that we would be redeemed then he fills us with his spirit so all we can do is survive every day and get through this horrible terrible world so that we can get to heaven what kind of pitiful God is that what kind of sorry Holy Spirit would that be God gave you Every single thing that pertains to life and godliness. Everything. That you have been abundantly filled with everything you need to not close your eyes and fill your ears with wax and hope that you make it to heaven. No. No. That's a horrible mistake. So Ulysses makes it home. But the story doesn't end there. Because then a man named Jason has to make it through that pass. You know Jason and the Argonauts? Jason. So Jason and his men have got to make this pass. And so he's got to come up with a plan. How is he going to get past the sirens? Now, he doesn't probably know about how Ulysses did it. I don't know because it's not like Ulysses called him on the cell phone and said, Hey, man, here's what I did. This is what you should do. So he probably doesn't know. So Jason has to figure out how he's going to get by. So Jason comes up with a completely different plan. Jason has heard about this man named Orpheus. Now, Orpheus is this very famous person in Greek mythology because he is the most gifted musician who's ever lived. His, he can play music that is more beautiful than any music that's ever been played ever anywhere on the planet Earth. That when he plays music, his music, literally, it just mesmerizes people with its unbelievable beauty. Jason gets Orpheus and puts Orpheus on his boat. And he says, now, here's what I want you to do. We're going to sail by this 
island. And when I give you the signal, I want you to start playing your music. And so when they get by the sirens, the sirens turn into their sensual demonic selves and start trying to lure the men in like they've always done. And Orpheus starts playing. And the sound of Orpheus playing is so beautiful that the men don't even notice the sirens. They don't even pay attention to the sirens at all. In fact, the story goes that the sirens begin to dash themselves against the rocks and kill themselves in frustration because Jason and his men don't even pay attention to them. That's never happened before. They don't know how to respond to that. And the whole time Orpheus is playing this music that's so unbelievable that those men just sail right on by. That's what the Christian life is supposed to be like. That Jesus is like Orpheus playing that music. That, that what, knowing that you're born again, knowing that you're loved, and knowing that you're an overcomer, should just drown out all of the nonsense that gets us derailed. In other words, God intends for you to sail right through the waters of the sirens that are screaming around you every single day trying to draw you in. Listen, when I think about this, the foolishness, it's just it's foolishness. I mean, I think about the times when I'm driving down the road and I stop at a red light and I look up and there's a giant billboard of a half-naked woman you know, and some beer in her hand. And I look at that, and then I look back down, and I think, man, I, I'm just so aggravated that there's billboards of half-naked women right there where, you know, everybody can see. And then I stop and go, no, what I really ought to be aggravated at is that I looked at that nonsense, and that I'm born again that I'm an overcomer, that I'm loved by people, and that I love them. And so what do I want to look at that for? In other words, don't you see, that's not a worthy challenger. I don't want to tie myself to the mass and just try to get through all of the things around me. I want, to, I want to wake up every day and go, you know what? All those snares that Satan has out there for us, are, they're, they're pathetic. They don't even compare. That's why you want to wake up as a child of God. You want to remind yourself of who you are and the reality of what God says. And you want to try to start your day with a diet of truth and reality. Because when you do that, then you can walk in the victory that that brings. You see, Ulysses made it through. What I'm trying to get you to see is that if you're a child of God, you're going to make it through, not because of you, but because of Him. If you're born again, you're going to persevere because that's how it works. My question is, what is the experience of persevering like? What little trinket is the world dangling in front of you 
that's some dollar store trinket when you have the world's most precious diamond in your pocket? Why are we paying attention? What difference does it make? Who cares? In his presence is fullness of joy. Listen, if you think for one second that you're going to legislate and and tame down your desire for joy and pleasure, that's like trying to hold your breath for an hour. You can't do that. You weren't created to do that. You were created to seek joy and pleasure. The question is, where are you seeking? Are you settling for something else? Or are you walking in the reality of what the Bible says about you? You see, somehow we've got to a place that so many people in Christianity think that joy is a bad thing. To which I say, hmm, well, that's interesting. Because the last time I read my Bible, I read a passage of Scripture like, I don't know, maybe Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, that says of the Lord Jesus, looking unto Him, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the, what's the word? Oh! Oh, so it's okay for Jesus. He's not modeling something for you and me. He's not, is that, if that's not the embodiment of obedience not being burdensome and cumbersome, that, that is, am I saying the cross was easy? Oh, no, that's not what I'm saying. What is that verse saying? That the cross wasn't that bad? That, the, that the, the process of assuming the sin of the world wasn't that catastrophic? That's not what the Bible's saying. The Bible's saying that his joy in the fellowship of the Father is greater than all of that sin being poured down upon him. That he knew ultimately that his relationship with his Father is greater than all of that Pain and agony and suffering. That he is literally the living embodiment of 1 John chapter 5. He's the son of God. He's loved by the father. And he is an overcomer. And somehow we celebrate that in him, but we don't think it translates to us. Yet the Bible says his very spirit is within us. You, ladies and gentlemen, tonight, you sitting where you are, if you know you are saved, then you need to shed the shackles that this world is binding you with and realize that what you have been shackled to is something so much greater, so much more wonderful. And what the Bible says is true for those who are saved is true for you. 
There's no conditions on these statements. John does not give any sort of, you know, if you this, then that. Nope, he just makes a blanket statement of truth. Plain and simple. You're born again. Nothing can ever change that. You're loved. You may feel alone. The world may tell you that you're not. The voice in your head may lie to you every second of every day. That your circumstances may be. But the Bible says you're loved. The Bible says you're loved. The Bible says you're loved. I don't know how many times you got to say that to yourself. But you're born again. You're loved. And whether you're riding in the back of an ambulance whether you're standing in a funeral parlor at the end of your wits, the Bible says your faith overcomes. You will not be overtaken by the world. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm just saying to me and to anybody who has any rational sense whatsoever, that's got to mean, that's got to be the highest Joy that a person could ever have. That what, what, what does the world have to come against that? Don't settle for a lesser joy. Don't fill your ears with wax and bind yourself up. Uh-uh. Not only is that not what God intended, not only is that a totally and utterly ineffective witness. Mm -mm. You know what? You know what compels people to come up to you and ask you, hey, what is it that's different about you? It's your joy. It's your joy that transcends your circumstances. It's your confidence in your king. That's what it is. And when you get distracted with the trinkets of the world, you send the utterly and completely wrong message to the people around you. And so in a few minutes, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. And there's a reason we had this talk tonight before we do what we're about to do. Because I want you to, again, understand something. That I think every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, there is no doubt in my mind that there are people in my presence that go through the motions of what we're about to do. Saved people who go through the motions of what we're about to celebrate and utterly and completely miss the tremendous exuberation that your soul should feel that you can participate in this. That what this symbolizes is the greatest information anyone could ever know. And that the one who made this information true is so determined that you and I would not forget that, that he commands us as his children to partake in this event, to continually 
perpetually drive into our heart the reality of who we are as his children. That this is a, a foretaste of what's to come. That every time the Lord's Supper celebrated, you need to make sure that you approach this time correctly. Yes. And that means in every facet. That means you, you cannot say that I'm a believer and that I believe in Jesus Christ and I'm born again, but I'm not going to partake. You see, that's a violation of His command right there. You can't do that. He says no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what your circumstances, no matter how you feel, if you are mine, you repent and partake. That's what He says. And if you don't do that, then you partake wrongly. Because, now why does he say that? Why is he so stern in his warning? Because he's sending a message to you and me that this is such an honor. It's such an amazing honor. God's saying, don't ever forget. Don't ever forget. I shed my blood. I gave my body. Not so that you could plug your ears with wax and just endure every day. No. Your faith is the victory. And I'm going to remind you of this continually. I'm going to remind you of this in Scripture over and over. I'm going to remind you of this through the Lord's Supper. I'm going to remind you of this as you... As you ebb and flow through the, the kingdom of God, through the family of the Lord. You, you see? That I'm constantly reminding you. You don't just tuck your tail between your legs and, and get through. It doesn't mean that every day of my life I just feel like I'm just filled with joy. But you know what? When I don't, It's not God's fault. It's my fault. It's my problem. And I just preach the gospel to myself over and over. Sometimes it's so dark and it feels so treacherous that all I can do is bow my head and just say, God, I'm saved. God, I'm saved. It's my way of saying... Satan can't win. He can't win. It doesn't matter if the scoreboard says it's a million to nothing. He can't win. He can't win. I already know the end. He can't win. He can't win. He can't win. The Lord's Supper is about you remembering. He can't win. Satan can never win because Jesus can never lose. Let's stand and bow our heads.